I thought we had one of the uh, great quotes that I've never heard before this week on Tuesday. Roger Vaughn, uh, who you may know who he is. I, uh, I, I'd never heard of him before, but, uh, but I'm glad I heard of him because he had this to say. The art of politics is ostentatious giving and surreptitious taking. We see an awful lot of talk on TV, you know, uh, everybody needs everything. And if you're not for giving everybody everything, then you're a terrible, rotten person. You know, we don't, we don't want you to give your own stuff. But if you're not for taking from everyone else, and then some of us feel like, hey, they're taking from me. What selfish people. But they try to kind of spread out the taxes, you know, I've, for, for decades now. I was about to say years, but unfortunately it's decades I've noticed that uh, an awful lot of uh, working people pay a very high percentage to Social Security of their of their income, and wealthier people pay a higher percentage of income tax, but a much lower percentage on the payroll tax, and it it sort of allows. I know a lot of people who think poor people don't pay any taxes, and they're wrong. Poor people pay, pay lots of taxes. And I know a lot of people who think rich people don't pay taxes. And I think they're wrong. Uh, I mean, I know the government has to borrow trillion plus every year, but um, but they do take trillions. And uh, anyway, so I, I enjoyed that quote and uh, appreciate it, Tim, because uh, uh, you put it together. And I, I had not heard that ever before. I couldn't find a picture of him, so I had to use a pickfinder.ai picture that I, you know, sort of concocted uh, using AI. He's an economist, and he was quoted, you know, years ago, decades ago, in a the New York Times piece or something like that, and it was just in one of my quotation books. But it was a pretty good one, so I put it up. I like it very much. Oh, we're already in the middle of it. This is This Week in Common Sense. That was Paul Jacob. He's going to be talking more in a few moments. But right now, I'm Timothy Verkel. I'm helping Paul run through the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org, the website he's been working on since 1999. We're going to kind of zip through some of them. And uh, this week, we had five. You know, it seems like every week there are five weekdays. And so we just seem to be on this repetitive five thing. But we had five this week, believe it or not, and the first one on Monday was too funny or too on target. And it was just about YouTube. Uh, you know, what else is new? YouTube pulling down uh, a video, a, a channel that makes fun of Xi Jinping, the Chinese dictator and genocidal maniac in chief. And uh, and there's some issue that they they may have played fast and loose with copyrights. Of course, if you talk to any attorney who knows anything about First Amendment law, um, you have a right to satire and you have a right to use something that's in the public domain to play off of. That's been a recognized right under the First Amendment. And the problem is that people don't have the battery of attorneys that some of these big corporations have. And so, you know, they fear that, you know, YouTube fears, look, uh, you know, we could be in trouble. We could get dragged into court. Uh, maybe. Maybe they're very easy. Oh, they pushed us a little bit. Boom, your channel's out. But the truth is, there may be an issue here of uh, of copyright infringement. 
more than likely, there's an issue of allowing powerful forces, including, I suspect, uh, forces emanating from uh, communist China, to push and get their way because nobody wants to stand up to them and no one wants to stand up for the free speech of the little guy. And our world depends on the free speech of the little guy. That's a great story, and it falls in line with uh, sort of our two main crusades of our time on your site there. It's social media censorship and threat of China. Those are two of the three themes that you know you <laughs> see often on the site. So they, Those are two day. good ones, yes. Well, you know, on Tuesday, we had a piece called Alien National Capital, and this is something we've I've written about a couple of times, uh, but... Uh, but not as much as I probably will be writing about it. But there are efforts all over the country to allow non-citizens to vote. And, you know, way back in the you know 1800s, there were non-citizens voting uh, up until the 1900s in, in different states. It was a way to kind of get people to move to our state, because if you move to our state, you can vote. Uh, understandable. Some things have changed in the last 100, 200 years. I mean, I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but there has been some change. And um, it seems to me that, in, in my view, I want people, if you're going to be voting on family issues in my family, I want you to be a part of the family. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a biological link or something. Just join the family. If you want to be part of the town, the state, the country and vote at any of those levels, you have to join the country. And, uh, and, and so, and, and I think that should be fairly easy to do. I mean, there, there are certain limits, uh, but not to get down all that rabbit hole. So I, I don't like the idea of non-citizens voting. I think you should have to be a citizen to vote, but DC has, you know, we talked about a couple of years ago, that uh, we had uh, New York City's council pass a thing to allow non-citizens to vote. Non-citizens who have a green card, who are legal permanent residents, you know, who are here legally, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, and yet it it was something that in a poll that a, a group I work with, Americans for Citizen Voting, uh, uh, commissioned they found that 62% of New Yorkers did not want the city council to do it. And of course, the left-wing city council did it overwhelmingly. But that was legal non-citizens. In Washington, D.C., they have decided that that's not nearly good enough. That if you are a Chinese national at the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C., and you work for Xi Jinping, you need to be voting on the candidates that that are elected in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital. You need to be voting on ballot measures. You need to be determining the school board, so on and so on. And, uh, and same if you're at the Russian embassy or, or the Iranian or any other number of countries. And um, and let, let's not suggest that, geez, they're, they're going to swing every election. But does this make any sense whatsoever? That, that are, are we so for voting rights that anybody in the world who shows up in D.C., legal or illegal, should be able to vote? Well, that's exactly what this does. Anyone who shows up in Washington, D.C., 
and can convince the officials in Washington, D.C., true or not, but let's let's just say for the sake of argument, it's true, that they have snuck into the country illegally, that they are working with Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in like a, a joint project, and they've been here for the magic 30 days. The folks in D.C., city council, 12 to 1, 12 to 1, they voted that anyone in the world who can get to D.C. and stay there for 30 days, legal or illegal, should vote, should vote in Washington, D.C. on local measures. And it is insane. Um, but even though the House brought it up, the right in the Constitution, it gives the federal government control over D.C., and we can argue about representation and so on. I want them to be represented, the people in D.C. I mean, they vote terribly. But, hey, lots of people vote terribly. They're still lovely people. And, uh, and, and they have rights, whether they're lovely or not. And so I want the folks in D.C. to have a vote. Put them in Maryland. I'll even take them in Virginia. But we're not giving them two senators. No. And uh, and it's interesting that the Democrats, of course, their big whole argument has been, well, we're not saying we're for or against any of these things, but it's just D.C.'s right as a local community to self-rule. But then the other thing the D.C. City Council passed that was controversial is their new criminal justice reform, which we can argue the fine points of it. But basically, the main thing that's been public, which is true is that they lowered the penalty for carjacking. Now, DC has a huge problem and it's like just exploding of carjackings. Murders up like 33% or something. Carjacking, I think, is up over 100%. That means it's more than double. And they're lowering the penalties for carjacking and they're complaining that they haven't been fully understood and so on. Okay, maybe, maybe there's a kernel of that, but there's enough that we know to be true to know that the this is ridiculous. It's so ridiculous even that in the House of Representatives, now controlled by Republicans, they brought up a resolution which Congress has the right under our Constitution, remember that document, uh, to decide whether that's going to be the law in D.C. or not. Republicans, every Republican who voted on it, voted to knock down the D.C. law, and 42 Democrats join them. That's basically one out of five Democrats in the House went that way. But that also means that four out of five Democrats in the House support non-citizen voting. Now, somebody out there saying, no, 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 Paul, you're stretching this. They don't support non-citizen voting. They just support the right of D.C. to make their own decisions, for the city council to make their own decisions. But we know that not to be true, because we know that they, on, on the other matter, they're more than willing to bring it up. The Senate brought it up on this criminal justice reform, if that's what you want to call it, 81 senators. That's at least 30, 32 uh, Democratic senators voted to strike down what D.C. had done. And, and, of course, Joe Biden, who has said 
that he supports what D.C. has done, because I guess D.C. has done it and has said he doesn't support non-citizen voting, that you should be a citizen to vote. He ended up saying he would sign on to that legislation and stop the district from doing what they want to do on criminal justice reform. But Democrats blocked any vote in the Senate on it. Biden hasn't done anything to say, hey, I would vote to stop this non-citizen voting. Here's the dirty little secret. The Democrats, and not every Democrat, because 42 in the House voted the right way, and other senators, if they'd gotten a vote, would have voted the right way. But the Democrats, meaning the Democratic leadership in Congress, at the White House, and all over the country, wants non-citizens to vote. They think they're going to get their votes. That's, that's what this is about. I mean, you know, this isn't some secret formula. This is, a, hey, I think they're going to vote for us, so let's let them vote. I think they're, they're going to be wrong in a lot of those cases, but it's just not good governance to allow people working for a foreign embassy who are a foreign national, who are going to return to that foreign country to be deciding things in Washington, D.C. That's insane. And there was an interesting article because they just the other day, Burlington, Vermont, became another city in Vermont to say we want non-citizens to be able to vote. And it's always pushed as, you know, voting rights and voting rights. And there was an interesting uh, discussion in this one article uh, where a woman who is not a citizen was really torn about it because she'd really like to vote here but she doesn't want to give up her citizenship back home. And I don't know if that was Denmark or Indonesia or the UK or where, but I don't, I don't recall. But I thought, isn't that interesting? She doesn't want to give up her citizenship to, to this other country, even though she's living here. Well, I mean, I guess you could switch citizenship every time you wanted to move, but that's part of what we're talking about is that, there is some sort of, hey, this is the country I'm associated with. This is the, you know, this is the uh, church that I go to. This is the civic group that I belong to. And when it comes for, you know, time for those groups or countries or cities or states to vote, it seems to me that it should be people who are part of that. And uh, so anyway, this is a, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's interesting because Democrats are going to run away from it every time it's raised, but they continually are pushing this at all sorts of levels. Bills in Rhode Island, uh, bills in Connecticut, bills in Illinois, uh, all to allow non-citizens to vote statewide, to allow cities to do it, encourage them to do it. And, uh, you know, if, if there's a problem with our immigration problem, let's fix it. But um, which, of course, neither party really wants to do because they like playing on the on the crisis. They like using it as a wedge issue to whip up their base. There's no real base on this idea of non-citizen voting. Uh, roughly 75 percent of Americans do not want non-citizens to vote. They just don't think it makes sense. They happen to agree with me. I don't get that every day. And uh, but. You will see in the coming years that you're going to hear Democrats all the time with help from the media say, oh, this is just a made up thing 
by conservatives, by people who don't like immigrants. And if you read these stories, they always start talking about it and then they confuse it as immigrants, as if we're against immigrant voting. Well, we're for immigrants and we want them to vote as soon as they get citizenship, please. And, and, uh, and so, but it's all conflated. It's all about rights. We've got to give more people rights. Watch this. It's going to be coming more and more. They've already done it in New York City. The courts are not going to stop it because I don't think the way these constitutions are written at the state level that they will stop it. They haven't. They haven't in Maryland. They haven't in California. They haven't in New York. Uh, they haven't in Vermont. The Vermont Supreme Court just recently ruled overwhelmingly that these are absolutely legal. This is a political question, and it should be a political question. I suggest that we put into our state constitutions that only citizens of the United States of America can vote. And I think it also makes sense to say only residents of your state, so that people who are there for 30 days or you know two weeks and 15 seconds or whatever are not coming in to vote. And, and look, I'm not suggesting that you know, there's just millions of people on the on the edge of town who are waiting for a, a chance to be here 30 days so that they can vote who are nefarious. No, most people aren't that way. But it doesn't make sense to create a legal and voting system that sort of plays to those sorts of people, however many there are. It's just it's craziness. And uh, and so there that's my uh, that's my two cents. The main fear, especially among the founders of democracy, was that a new majority would, you know, come into being that would basically plunder existing the wealth and persons of, exi of the existing population so that you'd have, you know, immigrants or some, you know, some invaders, you might say, or just just the next right. generation with no stake in anything would we'll just come in and vote away the property and, and rights of every everybody else. And that's the fear of democracy. And uh, it seems like people who call themselves Democrats would be concerned with not encouraging that fear. And one way not to encourage that fear is to actually have a system in place that orderly puts people into the category of voters rather than disorderly doing so. Yes. That's how I look at it. Is is it is can someone become a voter in an orderly manner when they sort of you're, what you're talking about is basically investing in the society. If you become a citizen, you're sort of investing somehow. Right. And I don't think that's an unreasonable idea. Uh, we certainly don't want people coming in from other countries and immediately starting voting in more welfare. That's actually where this is where there is a left-right divide is the people who want to increase the amount of transfer payments in society are actually playing into that fear that the people who don't want to increase the transfer payments in society, because the fear is to have voting erode the property of the people there. And now we're talking about now we everybody, the whole nation is facing a social security system that is insolvent. It was a 2035 or 34. It's going to hit that, you know, that magic moment when we can't pay all the bills. And the fix is usually, and it's been, you know, it was in the 1980s, you just whoppingly increase taxes, which is precisely the kind of thing that we're worried about is that it's tax increases that take away wealth. And on the flip side of that a little bit, one of the problems is we have a Ponzi scheme. I mean, that's just the truth. I know it's. I know you you get attacked if you say that, but it, you, you don't have to be anti-social security to say, I mean, I, I think it's not a good system, but you don't have to be against even that system or against some sort of system 
to admit that it's a Ponzi scheme. It's depending on more people working than there are retired receiving the benefits. Because otherwise, you know, one worker can't afford to pay somebody else's retirement and everything else and also have any money to take home and feed the family. So in essence, because birth rates are really low, um, we are not at replacement level without immigration. America needs immigration to keep that system even insolvent, but not zooming down the toilet. And uh, so, you know, there's a there's a two way street here. And, and the truth is, a lot of times immigrants come in and of course, they they haven't been here, so they haven't put anything into the pot, so to speak. And their kids are getting educated and they're getting this service and they're getting that service. But but I think most people who step back and look at the overall system realize that over time, they're a good thing unless you create incentives to get the worst sorts of immigrants to come in instead of the best sorts of immigrants. And by that, I don't mean the best sort aren't just, oh, I have a PhD in computer science or, you know, I'm a physicist or whatever. Um, but they are folks who believe in freedom and who are coming here because they want they want more freedom and are willing to work see the the brilliance of what what's been created in America and it's been created other places you're seeing more of it in places in Asia and that's why they you know they used to talk about the Asian tigers well what happened South Korea allowed people a, just a smidgen of freedom and Taiwan did and Singapore did and all of a sudden they're producing all this stuff what happened in America? Is it just that, you know, um, you know, God might like us, but he did, did he just like spray magic uh, money making dust on us? No, we got a little bit of freedom and we had a work ethic and a belief in in being good people instead of rotten people. And voila, all of a sudden money's being made. And every year we're getting stronger instead of weaker. And I think you know, I mean, I think today, and I, I think you share my feeling, there's that horrible feeling as if we're getting weaker every day, as if we're losing even the sense of what it is to, you know, uh, 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 a good team. I'm wearing my Razorback stuff. We were, <laughs> we were in the SEC tournament. We were 13 points up at halftime. We lost by six. So, so the second half wasn't very good. But, you know, when you have a good team, which apparently we don't so much, uh, but Texas A&M does, and they were really down. But if you start to then, you know, look, we all make mistakes. Everything doesn't always go up, up, up to success. If you have the freedom to make adjustments and the commitment to make those adjustments, good things are going to happen. And, and I think the problem that a lot of us see is America is – has decided that everything's going to come easy. Uh, we decided that we could afford to, I mean, we spend a zillion dollars on, on military might, but we didn't somehow think that we ought to maybe have some incentive for a few companies to be here. And part of that is environmental stuff and, and other laws, but part of that is our government being on the take. I mean, I think I think Bill Clinton was on the take to the Chinese communists. That's all there is to it. When you've got your president on the take and 
you know, look, I've, I've read a few books. If you want to sue me for slander, I invite the lawsuit. Please come. Because uh, I'm sure I'll have a whole team of people behind me to, to show evidence of it. Uh, other people have alleged it. I don't believe any of them have been sued. Um, but but we have, and, we've, and it isn't just Bill Clinton. It's been term after term. Donald Trump, I'm not sure why he, you know, made a big fight with China, but he did. And thank goodness he did, because now I think almost anyone who's president is going to feel like they they can't play the same old game of this tyranny. Let's look the other way, because in the short term, we can make billions of dollars. And and it's why the American people have to have control of our government. And it's why the truth is we need to have control of our of our marketplace, too. We need to be able to say to companies if you help tyrants, we will find another company to, to do business with and you will go broke. There's a lot of power in the marketplace, but it seems like, you know, one, the more mercantilism, state capitalism, the more people get rewarded because they know who's who's handing out the dough in Washington, D.C. instead of pleasing a lot of customers, that makes it less able for us to do something about it. And uh, I heard someone the other day on some program uh, speak about China as a mercantilist state capitalist power. And I really like that because I think that's exactly what China is. I mean, it's a, it's totalitarian. It's got the Nazi fascist type, you know, type symbols like concentration camps and genocide and and uh, harvesting body organs from live political prisoners and all kinds of horrific stuff that is more than just simply mercantilism. But as we've discussed sometimes on this podcast and in Common Sense, the American Revolution was against mercantilism. It was against the East India Trading Company. It was against, and I may have screwed up their name a little bit, but um, it, it, it was against these companies that are given huge power by the government and allowed to make all kinds of money. And then when they do stupid stuff and go broke, prevented from going broke. And of course, that sounds a lot like our banking system back in 2008. Uh, it, it sounds like a lot of things. I mean, the, uh, uh, so, and we talk about this too a lot, Tim, that, that, you know, so often it's the U S versus China, but really the battle for Americans and, and the battle for people in China that unfortunately we can't talk to, uh, you know, without, without, uh, that we can't talk to for one, but even if we could talk to them, we might, we might have to go to China and be arrested and they might get arrested too. But if we could, they want the same thing. Uh, we want to control our political elite to prevent them from controlling us. And, and in this modern technical world, the level of control in China is horrific. And the level of control that they are vying for in the United States of America is absolutely frightening. Well, I don't think you have uh, any lawsuit fears really founded from the Clintons. Uh, <laughs> you might consider the, worrying about suicide by, you know, shooting yourself and hanging yourself at the same time. <laughs> but aside from that, you know, I don't think you have any real, real fears. Uh, and uh, your next piece on Wednesday, we're going rather slow here. That was a, that was a long jaunt through uh, was a long national jaunt. capital, wasn't it? Uh, time for truth is now. <laughs> I like the, I like it when we when we have those question marks in the, in the titles. 
this had lots of comments. Uh, I encourage people to go to the website. This is commonsense.org. Time for truth is now. And this is about uh, the fact that the FBI has come out and said, hey, we've known for a while that, or we've suspected for a while, or concluded that most of the evidence gives us moderate confidence that this was a lab leak in, uh, uh, that the pandemic was caused by a lab leak in the Wuhan lab. And we've done so much on this because it's kind of important how millions of people died and what was the cause of it. It's, it's important from a medical context. It's important from a governmental context. Um, but it's it's not only, you know, I read articles all the time about this where they they don't come right out and say, look, the biggest problem here is that China clamped down on information. So it's in their country. They won't let you go. Look, they won't tell you anything. Gee, we can't find out the origin because, because the Chinazis will not let us find out about the origin. But the interesting thing for Americans is that neither will our own government, that the vaulted saint of medicine, Anthony Fauci, it's just there in black and white in his emails. He conspired with people. Now, that's a loaded word, but he got together with scientists and they plotted how can we use PR to trick the American people into thinking that anyone who talks about the lab leak, including like the former CDC director who is now out there all over the TV on cable and different places saying, I was cut out of the loop because I thought, hey, it sounds like it's a lab leak and I couldn't be bought off. There's a lot of suggestions that some of the scientists who had some concerns got millions of dollars from the NIH and then all of a sudden they didn't have any concerns anymore. Now, maybe it's all innocent as can be. Fauci may not have committed a crime according to the legal code in the United States by doing what he did. But by what is right and true, he committed a very, very serious crime against the American people. He used his position to kill truthful information so we didn't have it while we were dying. And I haven't, I haven't accused him of murder, but it does seem, you know, if you follow that track, you know, it's it really what he did is evil. It is evil. It was protect himself and the fact that he funded that gain of of function research in Wuhan. I mean, maybe they would have done it anyway, and they're so sloppy that they would have uh, that, that there would have been a leak. Um, and of course, you and I have talked before. The one thing that all these there was an article the other day. I, I forgot to send it to you. I think, but but somebody just going on and on in the Washington Post, some columnist about how the one thing we know for certain is this wasn't a bioweapon. Well, now let, let's think about this. You have no idea where it came from. But you're absolutely certain it wasn't a bioweapon. And no one has suggested that it's a bioweapon. But 50 billion times, people in powerful positions have said, hey, don't act like it's a bioweapon because we know it's not that. So it's, at a certain point, you start to suspect, is this possibly a bioweapon? 
You know, just because when people lie and cover up and say this is what it can't be, even though we have no clue what it is, it's it's very suspicious. And and but I I don't think you even have to go there. This isn't about look, if, if you're trying to figure out whether China is evil, and boy, if they did this, then they're evil. Stop looking at this. I can I can send you just stacks of stuff. They're, they're harvesting the organs of live political prisoners who did nothing wrong. There is tremendous evidence of that. Don't believe that? Well, look what they're doing in Tibet. Look what they've done to the Uyghurs. Look, and it's not like there's a tiny bit of evidence. There's huge evidence. Look what you saw on television in Hong Kong. Look at the fact that they threatened Taiwan all the time with military attack. You know what happens in a military attack? Bombs explode and people's limbs are ripped limb from limb. This is what they're all about. So, so you don't have to, you don't need the lab leak to determine that China is evil. But we already know enough in them shutting down all the information that they could care less what happens to the rest of the world. And what is so important that Americans understand is that our own government is right there with them. And when it all hit the fan, who was Fauci worried about? He was worried about Fauci first. And he was worried about his buddies in China and in the U.S. who were playing big guy Superman science and who got caught. They got caught thinking they were so brilliant that they could just... All the concerns in the U.S. and all the concerns under law about gain of function, that's for lesser beings. And they used our money to fund gain of function research, and they screwed it up, and they killed millions, and then they covered it up. And they attacked people who were trying to get people to look at enough that we might find the truth. Those are not good people. Those are very bad people. Or, or let's not say it that way. Those are not people doing good things. They're people doing very, very bad things. And they need to be held to account. And a lot of folks, I knew when, early on, I said some um, decent things about Fauci. Not, you know, not like lavish praise or anything, but just suggested that, you know, let's, let's listen a little bit to some of the people who know science. And I had a lot of feedback from people, very friendly for the most part. And then you know how internet feedback goes. So that it's friendly is just a shock. But I had some people I very much respect who said, you know, I don't know how much you know about Fauci, but I have been, in, I've been involved in different battles through the years and he is a snake. And, and, uh, and lo and behold, boy, were they right. And I just wanted to add one sort of addendum to all this. I don't disagree with anything you said, except that I probably would, talk about bioweaponry a little more eagerly than you. Um, but aside from that, I would say that it's our third year now with governments advising us what to do, you know, in this pandemic. And I've never heard a government official once advise taking vitamin D or any of the other now proven uh, treatments to reduce the lethality and the uh, lethality at least of the disease. And, and it also prevents you from getting it too. I mean, the people who are, the people who are most, uh, harmed by COVID have been people who are vitamin D deficient. And I've never heard a 
government person ever say anything for vitamin D. And this is my litmus test, actually. If you care about people during the pandemic, then you would have said something for vitamin D and its importance for uh, importance for people. But since you didn't, you're you're not you're on, on the, the worst list you can possibly be, in my opinion. Doctors who don't mention it to their patients are bad doctors. Uh, yeah. Because this is, this is really well established. Because now, it's the low hanging fruit. It's not yes. hard to find vitamin D on the shelf of your local you know, pharmacy or grocery store or wherever. Right. Um, both of those places. And there, I saw a segment the other day where they were talking about the disproportionate impact on African-Americans of COVID. And they talked about all kinds of things. And they talked about things like obesity because there's a higher percentage of Blacks who are poor, poor tends to be heavier because of the type of foods you eat, because of what, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different reasons, but that's a lot of it. And so, of course, they're going to be more up to have diabetes and other other ailments. And those comorbidities is a big deal. But none of that is connected to being black or being white or being Hispanic or Asian or whatever. That that is about socioeconomic issues primarily and not about race. What is about race is the skin color. And the darker your melatonin in your skin, the less you absorb vitamin D. And so a huge percentage of whites are vitamin D uh, deficient, like 20% or something. But somehow it's over 50% with, with blacks. Well, it, you know, being vitamin D deficient, apparently is, it's not like you drop dead from it, but it does. They have shown that there's a huge correlation. They don't completely understand it. So maybe it's some sort of thing that, that, you know, it's not as if it's proven that it will save you if you just take this vitamin D, but it's immune. It's about the immune system. I mean, basically that's, it's, yes. it's and, and, and they've seen a numerical correlation between vitamin D deficiency and severe uh, COVID problems, including death. And, and so it is, it's, it's outrageous, but, but look at how, and, and we've not talked that much. There's so much of, of this because the government has been so completely out of control during it to talk about, but they also, you know, they, they seem to poo-poo any of the treatments of it. And as you had pointed out, um, Part of that is probably because they couldn't get an emergency vaccine approved if they couldn't show, hey, there's no other way. There's no good treatment. And as soon as the vaccine's approved, then all of a sudden it seems like they're rolling out all these treatments. You know, another serious problem of all this is it's not like people wake up the next day and they forget everything. If people start to feel like they can't trust their doctor and the medical community any more than they can trust the media, which now has is, is like in Congress trust areas, like 10, 10%, 6% of the country has strong trust in the media. You know, 8% has strong trust in the Congress. Uh, this is a serious, serious problem. And it's, it, you know, it's just one thing after the other. And you see, you know, we're headed to these times that are that appear to look very serious around the world, not just war and the threat of war, but famine and all kinds of things. And and of course, that's always exacerbated by military and governmental screw ups. 
um, and and you know wars have a tendency to to create other catastrophes, uh, not just being blown apart. And and all of this is happening, and we don't we don't have the communication among us all that we used to have because we go through tech platforms that are you know run run by enemies of ours. Uh, and and I'm not saying enemies on the left or enemies on the right. Enemies because they want control over what we say and can say and can hear. And uh, this is, uh, this is it, it just shocks me to think um, how hopeful I thought the future of America was 30 years ago. As the internet started, as people had this sense, and not just America, but the whole world. Uh, that that this was going to allow communication and and people to get together in ways that would just be very liberating, and instead it's I've gotten to the point where I just uh, it's just it's darn scary to think of how much the government knows about us, how much information they collect on us, how much they could control where we go, what we buy, you know, what we can see, what we can read. Uh, this is we're we're in we're in some tough times, and I think uh, uh, for those of us our age who uh, you know we're kind of thinking maybe maybe uh, these are the golden years and and we can relax. Sorry, <laughs> no, sir. So, uh, and I hope people won't relax because um, you know we've we've managed to have schools that that. You know, if they did too much teaching of our of our kids or our of our friends' kids, our relatives' kids, uh, well, we're in trouble. So we we have a lot to do. You did two more things that week, this last and, week, and I'm just going to mention them real quick, uh, and then I wanted to mention a, a quote by. In fact, I'll do Ayn Rand first. Uh, we had a quote this week from Ayn Rand. We have thoughts every day. And uh, this one from Ayn Rand fits with what we were just talking about, which is, she says, man is free to choose not to be conscious, but not free to escape the penalty of unconsciousness, destruction. There you go. There you go. And that seems self-evident. I mean, it's very dramatic, but unfortunately it's true. And the, the two we hadn't gotten to, I'll just mention them very quickly. One is Register the Critics. And this is about the guy in, in uh, Florida who introduced a bill suggesting that if lobbyists are paid to write uh, lobbyists, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was in, his words were seeping into my brain. He made the argument that bloggers who write and mention, dare to mention the names of state legislators and are paid anything to write that they should have to register with the state legislature, with the state government, because they're really lobbying. So anybody who makes any money speaking to anybody else and dares to mention their name is all of a sudden going to be part of some, you know, register here and report all the money you're getting and report when you mention our name at any point, as if that has any, uh, any chance to be constitutional under the First Amendment, and as if that makes any sense for the type of society we'd want to live in. Interestingly enough, as we point out in this piece, <laughs> Joy Reid, one of my least favorite people in the whole world on the on the left on MSNBC, 
said it was a right wing, you know, thing. But of course, Newt Gingrich came out and said, you're insane. <laughs> Even though it's a re- and he was very sad that it was a Republican legislature, legislator and uh, and suggested he ought to withdraw his bill. The bill's not going anywhere. But years it's ago, been in I, the news. it really has been, been in the news. news and it's in the news and should be because we apparently live in a country where legislators think they could introduce a bill like that without getting their head taken off verbally. I mean, and, uh, and let's make sure that they remember, no, 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 no. You're going to get your head taken off when you, when you, you know, decide that you're going to start regulating free speech and, and make it no longer free. Um, the, the last one of the week was don't destroy farmers. I know I'm going out on a limb here, I guess, with some folks in the world I am, but, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk of famine and dislocations because of the pandemic, because of the lack of productivity and, and, uh, just less food being grown and, and, uh, more, more problems. And here we have a situation where in Belgium and in the Netherlands, they're talking about shutting down like one out of every three farms. And part of it is is because of the, you know, the the waste products from animals that are, you know, that are, uh, you know, a a serious environmental hazard, depending on how they're dealt with and what kind of quantities you're talking about. And also has, you know, has gases, nitric oxide and, you know, other things that are harmful uh, and that cause climate change. And, and so the idea is that we have to, in essence, you know, sacrifice the farmers because of the environmental problems that they're causing. And it strikes me that, you know, not that we should ignore any environmental problems that they're causing, because it doesn't ever help to ignore stuff. And we ought to have laws that don't allow people to do things that harm the, the people next door or the people down the road or the people down the river. And you do need to create laws. And then in some cases you have police enforce those laws. In other cases, you might have regulators who go and see if people are violating those laws. Part of the problem I have with so many regulations is they're not laws. They're, they're these fiefdoms that are, that are created by law and handed to bureaucrats and then the bureaucrats get to make all kinds of things up and require people to, you know, jump through all kinds of hoops and, and travel through regulatory mazes and stuff. And that is not very helpful, it seems like to me, in actually preventing environmental degradation. It's only helpful in having a lot of controversies so you can point fingers to who did it and, and what regulator they paid off to be able to do it and so on and so on. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of issues here, but the thing that jumps out to me is I don't think you've thought through this problem if your first thought is we need to shut down a third of the farms in the Netherlands or a third of the farms in Belgium, because not only do the people in the Netherlands and Belgium maybe need that food, but I think there's people all over the world who may need that food. So um, this is... Uh, you know, this is the sort of thing where we have talked about before the yellow vest effort in France, 
and the concerns with the price of, of uh, petrol, as they would say, as gas going so high. And, uh, and it's that way because we have to protect the environment. It's good that it's high because then people won't use as much and so on. But of course, who's being squeezed? Again, the working people are being squeezed. And, and we've pointed this out uh, a lot, it seems like, in, in recent times on the podcast and in, in scripts. People want to talk about the poor. They want to talk about the wealth gap. And then they start advocating policies that they, I hope they don't calculate the cost benefit, because if they did, they'd have to see that these programs are killing the poor, are making it very tough for poor people to get by. And, and again, it doesn't mean you ignore environmental damage or whatever, but, but it seems like if you're going to mouth off about how much you love the poor and how much you hate the, the wealth gap, that when you're advocating policies that, you know, kneecap poor people, and make it to where they're they can hardly work because they can't make enough money to pay all the bills you've hiked up. Maybe you need to come up with a different way to protect the environment. Yeah, well, they certainly need a different way. I have uh, a number of thoughts on the subject, but I guess I should postpone them. We're getting kind of late in the game here. It's got, we, we drawn this on to about an hour, I believe. So that means that we should probably uh, stop at some point. We should. We should. All right. Um, but we will come back. Well, that was This Week in Common Sense for the week ending March 10th, 2023. My name is Timothy Verkula. Thank you for joining us. See you next weekend. <laughs>